5 p.m. You're listening to Breakthrough News, and this is The Punch-Out. We're following the news all day so you don't have to, giving you everything you need to know about what's in the headlines and what should be. And we're back with you here on the Punch-Out 22nd of December 2020. Plenty of stuff for you, as we always do. Got some good news out of Ecuador. The left there, uh, there's elections coming up in February, you may not know, but the left there doing very well in the polls. Credit card companies, this is not so good news, driving up prices. And also, and where we'll start, some other not news, uh, not good news, I should say. And that's, that's definitely, in a way, it's not news either, quite frankly. It hasn't been reported as it should, as much as it should be. But either way, we'll start with Wall Street wanting you to cover their bad bets. Woo! All right, here we go. Punch out. All right, well, 2020 has been a year of binging as it concerns corporate debt. U.S. companies have borrowed a record, that's the most ever, $2.5 trillion in 2020. That's like $7,500 for every American if you want to put some scale on that there. And it certainly hasn't been a sustainable debt boom leverage. That's the difference between what you owe and what you make. It's sky high as well. That's bad. It means more companies are paying more and more towards their debts, which means they're more and more likely to go under. Now, why do they feel confident uh, taking out all this debt? Well, finan- the Financial Times asked Alex Varoud, he's a chief investment officer at Inside Investment, who said, quote, the Fed has created an expectation of a bailout. It almost doesn't matter what other indicators of debt or leverage show. If you think about it, it is insane. It's exactly what critics would say, what critics would say capitalism has created, but it's the reality. End quote. So right there, Financial Times, paper of the city bankers, letting it slip that the critics of capitalism are right, that it has created a totally absurd economic setup where central banks use lending policies to goose Wall Street and other lending areas to just recklessly lend until it all falls down. Then they take your money to bail out the banks and do limited cleanup of the, and certainly not adequate, of the massive and economic and social fallout that results from these big crashes. And it happened in the dot-com boom at the turn of the century. It happened in 2008. And here we are again. And I think it's worth thinking about. They always say we need bailouts to save the economy. But honestly, if the quote-unquote economy needs tens of trillions of dollars in subsidies, essentially at all times to work at all, and then only then for a few years before it catastrophically uh, crashes, shouldn't we really be thinking not about bailing it out again and again, but about changing how it's structured? Just a thought. Anyway, to give you some more direct numbers about these corporate debt issues, the number of zombie companies is also at an all-time high. What is a zombie company? Well, it's a company whose interest uh, on debt has exceeded its profits for the past three years. Roughly 15% of small cap companies, they're companies that are about $300 million, uh, $300 million $2 billion is what they're worth, really. So, you know, mid, I guess you can consider that mid-size a lot of money, $300 million, $2 billion, but you get the sense of it in the broader company, uh, the broader economy. Anyway, 15% of those small cap companies are zombie companies, meaning they have to pay more in interest on debts than they make in profits, and that's been the case for the past three years, or at least the past three years. That 15% is only a percentage point or two off the all-time high, which, interestingly enough, preceded the dot-com boom in 2000, uh, the dot-com bust, I should say, in 2001, economic crash there at the turn of the century. Now, on top of that, 
15% issue. This year has also seen a record, that's the most, uh, of number of companies receiving a triple C minus credit rating, which is not good at all. The most. What's going on is actually pretty straightforward here, though. The Fed is using both the purchase and sale, as they always do, of all sorts of financial products. And by doing all these various things, they basically just put a bunch of money out there. The more money that's available, the cheaper it is to lend. So the Fed policies for years now have made it very cheap to lend. Strong companies take on more debt because they can easily pay the interest. But there are only but so many good investment opportunities and lots of money. So then financial institutions start taking riskier bets on who to lend to, just hoping it works out. And since by both words and deeds, the federal government has shown for the past 20 years it will indeed bail out the financial system at the heart of the economy, the longer the cheap money regime goes on, the more the Fed is really saying, look, just lend away. We got you. Don't worry about it. And hence, you get a lot of reckless lending that gives you 15% of small cap companies being zombie companies. The system is obviously fragile and deeply interconnected. Here's an example. As we've noted to you many times on this program, that from September of 2019 to March of 2020, the Fed pumped $9 trillion into the repo market. Uh, this is basically entirely secret, uh, clearly to prop it up from failing. Now, they never explained exactly what happened, but obviously here... They were willing to step in in a major way, and there was a major problem, and this is before the pandemic, so it just gives you a sense of how easy it is for big problems like $9 trillion problems to arise, even in normal conditions. So just for example here, think about it like this. A hedge fund sells Bank of America and Fidelity repos. This is basically... Of short-term loans is how it is. So essentially, let's just say that. They get a short-term loan, a hedge fund, from Bank of America or Fidelity. They use it to fund investments in a bunch of small caps. Those companies go belly up because something's happening. And that means they can't buy back those assets from Bank of America or Fidelity at the agreed-upon price. And, you know, maybe one or two of those situations, it can work out. You don't expect everyone you lend money to in these situations for it to work out 100%. But if you're Bank of America or Fidelity, and the thing that the hedge funds are really tripping up on isn't just one company, but something bigger in the economy, you could see how a lot of people maybe couldn't pay all at once, or even just a decent number of people, then those big companies would have to scramble to cover something else to make sure that they could cover that loss, and then is something else uncovered, and so on and so forth. You could see how they could start to go down or start to struggle, or someone connected to them who doesn't get paid could start to go down, and you know it really can just all get out of hand. Really, when it all starts to fall down, it all starts to fall down. That's how deeply interrelated all of these very risky financial markets really are. So everyone knows how easily the system can break. Uh, I mean, just everybody who's investing knows this. And the only thing that really keeps it going is the guarantees. Because why else would you get involved knowing that eventually the thing is not going to work out unless you know that if you take a risky bet and it doesn't work out, someone else is going to pay for it. And this, by the way, is a situation the Federal Reserve plans to keep going for a long time, by the way. So, you know, it can get worse. So I have to just ask again, if we essentially know ahead of time that this bubble two is sure to burst, is the answer to just sort of shrug your shoulders and use ordinary people's money for the inevitable Wall Street bailout? Well, that's the answer that, mo that both major parties are giving you and that most mainstream economists are giving you as well. Yes, just it's the way it is. It's the economy. What else can you do but bail out the economy? But if you think that that is totally ridiculous and that instead we should just structure it a different way so that these absurd things that destroy people's lives don't happen, well, I would agree with you there, but I have to say, you're almost certainly going to have to fight for it.
right, well, sticking with the finance industry here, we want to talk about a, talk a bit about credit cards and prices and how there's a good chance you're being consistently price gouged. So we all know that there's a fee for merchants every time someone uses a credit card or a debit card. And I'm sure you are also aware that they're building those fees into the price of whatever you're buying. Now, what you may not know is that the fee for credit cards is much higher than debit cards, but prices are set in relationship to that credit card fee level. So if you use debit cards uh, and or cash for most of your purchases, you are paying a penalty for not using a credit card. A new study from the Kansas City Federal Reserve actually took a look at this issue and highlighted a range of notable facts. And first, obviously, is just the obvious one there, right? Which is that it's less advantageous to use a debit card or cash because, you know, you have to end up paying the difference, essentially, or paying a penalty uh, for the extra money on top of what you shouldn't have to pay from the debit card fee versus the credit card fee. And then there's obviously a second piece of that as well. Credit cards give higher rewards, which means you're going to be even more insulated from the price. So anyway, back to the overall effect of it. On average, this sounds weird, but it'll make sense to you here. On average, U.S. merchants lose about $13 a month uh, on people who are making about $150,000 a year, and they gain about 60 cents per month from a person making $20,000 to $25,000 a year. So obviously, the way they make money, right, is that they're either selling expensive goods that are above the overall average in order to, uh, you know, cover all those fees and make sure you still make a lot of money, or you're going to try to maximize the number of customers that are paying with cash and debit cards in order to reap the benefits of the penalty that you're essentially forcing them to pay. And so, you know, and it may be layman's terms, an easier way to to look at it is like this. If I'm a business, I'm charging you $10. I'm charging you $10 because it covers the credit card fee. But if you use a debit card, I could have charged you $6 and made the same amount of money. So really, you just paid me four extra dollars and you actually don't even know it because it's not a separate charge in the, 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 the item of the receipt there. It's just in the regular price. So, you know, I'm getting over on you and you don't even know it. And since your access to and frequency of use of credit cards increases with income, the richer you are, the more likely credit card rewards are going to cover some to all of the monthly total in credit card fees baked into the prices of the things you buy. The lower your income and the more likely you are to use debit cards with lower fees or cash with no fees, the more you are essentially just paying a service charge for not using a credit card. Now, the more we move towards a digital payments only sort of economy, that's going to exacerbate income inequality and poverty by essentially giving money back to higher income customers through a reward system while penalizing lower income people who, even if they have very sound finances, are largely locked out of the reward system because they don't make enough money for uh, or have good enough credit scores to get into the sort of credit card game or use it enough for it to really make a difference. So really the bottom line here is the way the payment structure works vis-a-vis these different cards and the fees and the way it pays into the price is that there's an income-based surcharge on being poor. Essentially, it costs you to make less money in terms of the prices for the goods you pay. Okay, well, we're going to end with some good news here. Ecuador, Andres Arroz, who's a candidate there representing the broadly left-wing UNES party in the upcoming elections that are going to be happening in February there. Uh, he's affiliated with the broader citizens movement. You may remember uh, Rafael Correa was the president from 2007 to 2017. So if you can remember that time, he's affiliated with that sort of broad trend of things that are going on. Andres Arroz is up 13% in the recent polls asking 
asking voters their intentions for the election. And uh, honestly, this is a remarkable turnaround in many ways here. I mean, Bolivia for many people is a remarkable quick turnaround vis-a-vis -vis the coup there. But the citizens movement out of power for about three years seemed like maybe they had been purged from politics, making a big comeback here. In 2017, the current president, Lenin Moreno, who had been the vice president under Rafael Correa, just broke sharply from the predecessors to promote a strongly neoliberal government type of government with government tied neoliberal style policies tied to a lot of IMF loans, pushing austerity and so on and so forth. This is the same kind of agenda that had kept Ecuador impoverished for decades despite having vast wealth. And Moreno's regime became deeply mired in corruption scandals in addition to poorly managing the economy. This year, they truly botched the COVID-19 response and they have alienated many people with dubious legal crackdowns. Uh, and as such, his preferred candidate, here we go, is at about 1% in the polls. So it gives you a sense of how his regime is seen there by the people in Ecuador. And no, not surprisingly, the government had tried to use a wide range of legal tricks to keep Oroz off the ballot because as a longtime member of the citizens movement more broadly, he's associated with Rafael Correa, who remains very popular. It was clear Oroz would probably be able to do something in these elections. They were not able to defeat him in terms of keeping him off the ballot. And he does seem to be doing something up 13% again, seems to have inspired hope in the ability to return the country to a more equitable state of affairs, something that would echo the 2006 to 2017 uh, citizens movement government of Rafael Correa, where they had a 38% reduction in poverty, a 47% reduction in extreme poverty, social spending as a percentage of GDP doubled, including increases in education and in healthcare. Educational enrollment went up for people who were uh, age of 17 and under, and higher education, the spending on higher education as a percent of GDP was the highest in Latin America. The average annual growth of income per person was much higher than it had been in the prior 26 years. And of course, income inequality was considerably reduced. And I mentioned some of those investments in uh, healthcare and education. They were also building roads and, and getting electricity to people, doing many, many key development tasks. So it's no surprise here that many in Ecuador want to turn back in this direction and walk that path. And it seems as if for now, it's almost a foregone conclusion. But, you know, a lot can happen between now and February, of course. But a win by Arose would also move Ecuador back into the left wing block of Latin American nations and make his win a major blow uh, to the U.S. strategy of promoting these far-right governments over, well, basically for quite some time, but especially over the past few years in Latin America. And that's going to do it for us here on The Punch Out. And this is going to be the last punch out before the holidays. We're going to take a bit of, a bit of a holiday break here. We're going to be back on January 4th. But shout out to everyone who has supported us so far, listened to us, followed us, shared, whatever you have done to support The Punch Out. We really, really appreciate it on behalf of Breakthrough News. So taking a bit of a holiday break, but we will be very happy to be with you in the new year.